Amen. Good morning. So wonderful to be here with you this morning and see you. And thank you for all of our visitors for choosing to be with us this morning. We're so blessed to have you with us and to have those of you who are joining us online with us as well. When you think of church, what comes to mind? What image comes to mind? Probably one of the most common things that we think of when we think of church is this time that we're experiencing now, the gathered assembly to worship, that time of worship. We even say, I'm going to church. And we know we mean, we know we understand that we're the church, the people are the church, but, but that's what we think of when we come together for worship. That's what we think of when we think of the church, is that worship time. And that is one of the most important times together as a church. One of the most important things we do is gather together on a regular basis, weekly, to worship God, encourage one another, and build up one another. Well, Paul has some things to say specifically to the church and the public worship or the worship time in our passage that we're looking at today as we study First and Second Timothy and Titus. And so for the last two weeks, we looked at unfaithful teachers or, or false teachers and what uh, Paul wrote to those two different ministers. And today we're looking at faithful worship and the things that Paul says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he's going to say a few things here in this chapter. He doesn't exhaust the subject, but he says some really important things that he wanted the church in Ephesus to hear, and it applies to all of us as well about the assembly to worship, the assembly of the saints to worship God. And so we'll also see that Paul was not just talking to a specific people at a specific time. It had only applied to the Ephesians and that they were the only ones that needed to hear this. And it didn't apply to anyone else and at any other location or at any other time. We're going to see that it applied for all time, even though he wrote it originally specifically to the Ephesian Christians. And so turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2 as we start looking at this idea of faithful worship. What is faithful worship? And as I said, we're just looking at what Paul wrote to Timothy here in this chapter, and there's certainly many other places in Scripture to go to. But he begins with this big summarizing statement about prayer. That's how he begins this, this thought as what we have called chapter 2, to say this big thing about prayer. And he emphasizes the importance of prayer in the worship service. So let me read verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, that which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. 
So verse 1 really just says it all. He says this big idea about prayer. Notice what he says about prayer. He says when the Christians, when Christians come together, you need to pray. That prayer is important in worship. Prayer is, is an important part of our worship time together. And already this morning we've prayed and together and we'll pray again uh, uh, later in our service. And every time we gather together, we pray. So certainly we need to pray in our private lives and in our families with uh, friends and loved ones and at other occasions. But prayer is, is, is very important to the church when we come together to worship. Now notice that Paul wasn't just suggesting we pray. And I've, I've pointed this out as he, in the way that he writes to Timothy and Titus. These aren't just mere suggestions. If you have time, if you can squeeze it in, if you feel like it, if everybody wants to do this, he, he's giving instructions for worship. And so he, he uses the word urge. I, he urged us to pray. The meaning of this word urge is it gives us the picture of a father calling over one of his children to him. And he puts his arm around their neck and he talks to them about something very, very important. That, that's the language Paul is using. That's what Paul is doing to Timothy. He's calling him over in a spiritual sense through this writing to say, I urge Y'all, that's a, that's a strong urge. I urge y'all, be people of prayer when you come together. Pray. Now, who do we pray for? He says there in that, that first verse, we pray for all people. Paul tells Timothy that the church should offer up prayers for all people. And what does that tell us? That tells us that we need to be aware and paying attention to what's going on in people's lives, in the church, and in the lives of people in the world around us. Whether that's extended family, our community, somewhere else in the country, somewhere else in the world, that we're, we're sensitive to what's going on in the lives of people, and we're praying about people. We're praying to God on their behalf. And so, now here in this passage, your translation may... Uh, say pray for all prayers be uh, you know expressed for all men some translations will say that but the Greek word for men most many translations will say people uh, it's it's a generic word so it means mankind humankind people everyone that's the word that Paul uses there if yours happens to say uh, pray for all men he it is a generic word for all people and then he he gives us these uh, specific uh, people that we need to pray for. So in addition to praying for all people, everyone, he says, I want you to pray for kings and all in high positions. For kings and all in high positions. And what the words there mean is really anyone at any level of authority to pray for those people. From the person at the top, the king, all the way down to all other people who would rank underneath that person. So we, we would say we're supposed to pray for our president. We're supposed to pray for our administration, for our city leaders, our police officers, our, 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 uh, you know, all of our uh, people who serve at different levels of society. We're to pray for those folks. Pray for our school board and our school uh, superintendent, our teachers. Pray for all of these folks in every way. Now notice his reasoning 
for praying in particular because he's in particularly uh, identifying people of authority like legal authority in our lives, like kings and those in high authority. What's his reasoning? What's his motivation for urging us to pray for them? Well, we'll notice that it's gospel-centered. It's Jesus-centered is his reason for having us pray for those people. Because those people in high positions are making decisions that affect our everyday lives. Decisions that even affect our freedoms to worship and to to live out our faith. And, And we know that in the first century they lived in a time where there was a lot of persecution of Christians, wasn't there? And so they, Paul was saying, pray for those people so that we can live godly and quiet lives without turmoil, without oppression, without persecution. But why? Why was he, was that so that we could just be comfortable? So that Christians didn't have to go deal with the things that they're dealing with? And I appreciate so much the things Brother Chin sh- shared last week. And he talked about uh, uh, what it's like for uh, the folks there in China to get the gospel, and, 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 it's, and it's vitally important. See, we just don't understand that reality like Brother Chen does and, and many missionaries in different places. But he tells us, look at verses 3 through 4, he tells us the reason why, what's the motivation. This is good when you pray for all people. This is good when you pray uh, for kings and those in high positions. Because it is pleasing the sight of God our Savior, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, that's why we're supposed to pray for kings and those in authority so that we can live quiet lives without turmoil and persecution. Why? So that we can live out our faith. And so, so uh, Paul is telling us that the result of Christians being able to freely live out their faith should be more people coming to know Christ. Evangelism and more souls being added to the body of Christ should be the result of Christians living free from persecution and turmoil to live out their faith. Does that make sense? So he says, you better be praying for them so that they won't oppress you and persecute you so that you can more freely do the work of the Lord and bring lost souls to Christ. That's your motivation for praying for folks in high positions. Because it's gospel-centered. In Paul's mind, remember in Philippians, he said, for me to live is Christ. For him, it was, it was all about living a Christ-centered life. Now, the next portion of this chapter uh, and Paul's instructions on worship take a turn here as we get to verse number 8. And he gives us some specific instructions about men and women in worship. So look at verse number eight. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So again, he's emphasizing the importance of prayer in the church, coming together to pray. And when he says, I desire, your translation may may say, I want, this is an, an apostle of Jesus, uh, inspired, divinely led, guided by God, by the Holy Spirit to write these words. And so God, through Paul, is writing, I desire then, I want then, that in every place men should pray. The men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger 
or quarreling. So he gives some specific instructions on prayer. He says that I want this in every place. So when the church comes together everywhere, not just in Ephesus, not just in the first century, everywhere, in every place, in every time is what he's saying. Here's what should happen. The men, I want the men to come and pray, to lead the prayers. So Paul is continuing to encourage praying in the church, but he's also saying who should be leading those prayers. And he's saying in every place, I want the men to lead the prayer. So it's a universal command, not specific to their time or their culture or their customs. And he says that he wants men to lift up holy hands in prayer. And so we might ask, well, what are holy hands? How do I know if I have holy hands or if brother so-and-so has holy hands? Well, that, that expression comes from the Old Testament. And it's a way, of, it's a figure of speech. And what it means is someone who is, is striving. Certainly they're not perfect. Certainly they're not you know, the most holy person in the church. Uh, but they're a person striving to be holy for God, to live for God. They're devout in their faith. They're sincere in their faith. In other words, you're not scrambling and saying, oh, brother, so-and-so, would, it, we need somebody to pray. I know you, you know... You, you've been doing all kinds of stuff and you couldn't care less, but could you come up and lead the prayer for us? He's saying that you take this seriously, leading worship and leading prayers, and the men who are asked to lead prayers need to take it seriously and understand that what we're doing is we're coming together and you're leading the church together to pray to God. That's what he's saying. He said, don't, don't just act like this isn't anything important. Don't, and, and get your thoughts together before you go up there. So don't go up there. Um, well, God, uh, no, think about what you're doing when you lead the church in prayer. Give thought to this is what he's saying. These are men who are focused on pleasing God in their lives. It's important to them, and they understand what the coming together of the church for worship is about. So it's not, he says, not in anger or in quarreling and all that. It's not a time for a brother to get up here and uh, talk about his agenda or pray about what he's upset about and, 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 and vent and grind an axe. That's not at all what he's supposed to do. He's to come up and to lead the church in prayer to God. That's what he, Paul says, I want to see happen in the church. This brother understands that he's leading the church in praying to the one and only true and living God. And then as we turn to, chapter, uh, to verse number 9, we look at verses 9 through 15. Paul now gives some instructions to women in worship. And these verses are the most controversial verses in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus and perhaps some of the most controversial verses in the New Testament. But they're not controversial because we can't understand what they're saying. They're controversial because not everybody likes what they're saying. That's where the controversy is. So let's just uh, determine to ask ourselves not what I want, not what I like, not what I'm comfortable with or prefer, not, not what the popular uh, opinion is, not what is, is current in modern day society, not what the majority of people want to do, but what is it that God has said in his word that he wants? 
That's what I ought to be asking. And whether or not I like it or not, my, my, my heart ought to be, my motivation ought to be, God, what do you want to happen in worship? And so let's look at verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, likewise, he continues his sentence from verse number 8, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, did Paul say, here's what I want women to wear? Now, yours may or may not kind of give that translation. That's kind of how we think of it. Is Paul's telling us what to wear. Paul's not really being that specific in terms of articles of clothing about what to wear. Notice the word that Paul uses. He says, adorn. I want women to adorn themselves. Uh, not to wear proper clothing, but to adorn themselves. It's a deeper, more spiritual meaning, adorn themselves. Uh, that word adorn means to cause to have an attractive appearance through decoration. It's more than just, I'm telling you what to wear and what not to wear. I want you to adorn yourself with things that are appropriate for godly women. And he says... Uh, He's not saying that women have to wear drab, sad, old clothing. I mean, all gray. You, don't, you know, you can't do your hair. You, that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that's how you have to look if you're a Christian. So let's notice what he's saying. He's saying that a woman's clothing, what he means is, should not be revealing and flaunting her looks as well as what seems to have been a problem in that church was uh, uh, wealth. We know that many in the first century didn't have much at all, but there were some who had wealth. They had, they had the ability, the, the, they, they had the money. See, we don't, it's not the same for us today. They, they, they didn't all have the money to dress themselves with the braided hair and the gold and the pearls, and some were elaborate, like some of these celebrity uh, uh, award shows where they have these elaborate dresses, and, and, it's all, and it focuses uh, the attention on them, and the cameras turn, and they even have places where they stop and take pictures, and you can see what the celebrities wear. And then the next day is the list of best dressed and worst dressed, right, from these award ceremonies or whatever. There's 50 million of them nowadays. And so Paul says, that's not how godly Christian women are supposed to uh, dress to be in a seductive way, flaunting your looks or even your wealth. But Paul's teaching that women should adorn themselves with these things, with respectable apparel, modesty, and self-control, with what is proper for women who profess godliness and have good works. That's the way women ought to dress. So that's more than just the dress you're putting on or the, the blouse or the skirt and the shoes. It's this whole concept of godliness. And again, he's not saying you have to wear drab, sad, you know, old clothes. That, he's not saying you have to wear grandma's hand-me-downs. That's not what he's preaching. But godly women. So the descriptions of the braided hair and gold and pearls, expensive clothes, were examples of people flaunting their wealth and flaunting their beauty to turn the attention to themselves instead of realizing that the worship service, when we come together for worship, it's about glorifying God, not glorifying self. 
where you walk in and everybody sees what you've got. It should be about glorifying God and not glorifying ourselves. And then next, Paul gives instructions in verses 11 through 12 about women teaching in worship. Another one that's super controversial today, and, and you know, uh, just a, a generation or, or two ago, this was not nearly as common and, 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 and even not even seen, and now it's much more common nowadays. But we just want to look at what does the Bible say? What does Scripture tell us about this? So look at verses 11 through 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So women, what he's saying is are not to give instruction, teaching, preaching, leading in the worship service. He's talking about his context is the assembled worship service of the church. So does this mean that women can't teach at all, that they, that they have to be silent? That word there actually isn't silent. Some translations of King James say silent. It's actually quiet, and he's already used that word in, 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 uh, in, in verse 2 when he talks about praying so that we can live quiet lives. Quiet lives. That's, that's what he's, that's the same word he uses here in this passage. So it, does that mean that women can't teach at all? Women are not allowed to teach anyone. They can't give instruction. They can't help. They can't do anything. They're good for nothing. Not at all. Not in the least bit is that what Paul's saying. In Titus 2, we see, and we'll look at later in another sermon, that they were to teach one another. When the church was scattered by persecution in Acts chapter 8, the Bible says they went about teaching. Certainly you can imagine women doing a lot of teaching of all the different families and people they would come across, the teaching that would happen. Some women in the first century were even given the gifts of prophecy. And Priscilla helped Aquila teach Apollos more accurately the way. And so we see women teaching. Paul's instructions were about the time we gather together for worship. Some might say corporate worship or the official worship service of the Lord. So the word quiet doesn't mean silence. She better not say anything. If that's the case, she couldn't sing. If that's the case, she couldn't say amen. She couldn't greet a visitor. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying this idea of quietness, like I said, is what he used in verse, verse 2. In verse 12, when Paul says he doesn't permit a woman to exercise authority over a man, this is the opposite word, uh, the opposite idea of submissiveness that he just used in verse 11. They're opposites. That exercise authority is opposite of submissiveness. And he's describing the way that God has simply ordered roles and relationships in the church as well as in the family. And so if that wasn't enough to get everybody stirred up and some people not liking what the Bible says and, well, I think and I, I disagree and what about, and that's understandable. Guess what? The Bible truth is not afraid of questions. God is not bothered or angered or hurt by questions. But, yeah, God, I don't understand, but help me understand. Or, God, I don't like that. That doesn't hurt truth. Does that make sense? Because truth stands even against questions and disagreements. But look at verse, verses 13 and 14. Paul continues, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So here Paul gives his reason for saying what he's saying about women's roles in worship. 
He's not angry towards women. He's not unloving towards women. He doesn't tie it to contemporary culture, the customs of the day. He doesn't tie it to a problem that was happening there in Ephesus. He goes all the way back to creation and the fall in the Garden of Eden. He goes back to the beginning to say, this is why I'm giving you this instruction now because of the creation and the fall. So he goes all the way back to the beginning. And it's because of these things, these two things, the creation order, and because Eve was the first to sin, that God has ordained the, order, the roles and the relationships in worship that he has. But verse 15 is interesting, though, isn't it? Look at verse 15. This one, it really is a difficult verse. And I encourage you to study this and all of these more on your own. But he writes, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That just sounds like a tough verse. What do you mean she'll be saved through childbearing? And then if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You see, Eve may have been the first person to sin, and of course, then Adam was. Adam wasn't fulfilling his role to be the spiritual leader and, and to help and to be there for his wife. He wasn't doing his job, certainly. And Paul rails on him plenty through Romans and other places. So he's not off scot-free, but, but Eve was, although the first person to sin, uh, and, and the, the difference is, is that he's, Paul is showing that God took the woman's ability, blessed the woman with the ability to bring new life into the world. And through woman came who? Jesus Christ, our Savior. And through woman comes all new life in this world. So even though Eve was first to sin in this world, she's not written off. Look at the great uh, blessing that she has, and he holds high her blessing of being able to bring new life into the world. And some people will say, oh, you're just making too much of being able to have children. You're, you're patronizing women. Well, why have we let Satan and the world and culture make us believe that, that that's not important, that that's not extremely valuable and wonderful? That's a miracle to bring forth life into this world. That's an amazing thing that only God could do. We didn't evolve from goo out of some water and eventually now be able to bear children, for women to be able to bear children. God designed it this way. And so, so, so Eve did what she did, but look at how God uses women to bring forth new life. And what does, what does mama do, a Christian mama with her children? She raises them to know Jesus and love Jesus and live for Jesus. And through, through woman, through Mary came Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, all of those people, and, and every one of us here today. So Paul instructs that men lead in worship, but he holds high this great blessing that women have to bring forth new life into this world, and they should be highly regarded for that. And that's certainly not all that women can do. Absolutely not. They do lots of things. Joyce and I know uh, Carolyn Atkins from Oldham Lane. She's the wife of one of the elders there, Chris Atkins. 
And I tell you, Carolyn, we call her not John the Baptist, but Carolyn the Baptist because she's done prison ministry with women for years and years. And she's baptized, I guarantee you, more women than anyone in, in all of Oldham Lane Church of Christ. Carolyn Atkins can teach the gospel and baptize people. And she's an expert at it. And so we need to learn from them and highly regard women for their spiritual uh, giftedness and the blessings that God gave them to bring forth uh, new life. So, yes, it's, it's a difficult passage, but we need to see what is God trying to tell us in this passage. He says they will be saved through child, childbearing. Now, that's, that's, that's odd there. It's hard to understand. But he's not saying that they will be given eternal salvation through childbearing. And it can sound like that, of course. But Paul is highlighting the enormous blessing that they have, that women have. And when Christian women have children and they stay faithful, and that's what is, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, and what is that Christian mama doing? She's raising her children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, isn't she? She's helping minister to other women. She's serving in the church and in, in every way she's able to. So it can be tough, these things that Paul has said, these instructions he's given for public worship, uh, especially for women, can even be tough to swallow. And sometimes they, they don't sound like they're uh, politically correct nowadays. Like you shouldn't say these things nowadays. And this, this just shouldn't still be right in how to do church. But the word of the Lord stands forever, and that's what God has said he wants in his worship. And it doesn't sit well in our culture, but we've got to decide, well, what am I going to do? I am either going to trust God and let God be God and have my, put my faith in Him and follow Him faithfully, or I'm going to reject the things that He says that I don't like. So we have two choices. I can trust Him and say God knows what He's doing because He's God. I'm going to submit and obey God, whether I'm male or female, whatever He says, or I can reject His words uh, because I don't like them. And I think it might help to wrap up by looking at uh, reminding ourselves of the theme verse of 1 Timothy, which is chapter 3, verse 15. And we'll look at verse 16 real quick. And what I've said really could be said to be the, the, the theme verse for the, all three letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or foundation of the truth. So Christians are in the very household of God. This is his house. So we don't get to come in the house and say, these are my rules, God. This is the way I want it. This is the way I think it ought to be. This is the way I wish it ought to be. This is what we think we ought to do. Most people agree with this. Therefore, we ought to get to do it. That's just not the way it works because this is God's house. And what does he say God's house is? God's household is the church, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of what? Truth. So if we'll stick with his words and, and, and submit to him and what he wants, and, and, and then that's going to always work out for us. So uh, this, then look at verse number 16. Paul continues and he quotes this, what's thought to be a hymn, Something, it might have been a prayer, and they would have all been familiar with it. Look at verse number 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
He was, and here it is, in other words. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What is this mystery of godliness? That's Jesus revealed. That's our faith in Christ. And he's saying, he's saying we confess this mystery of godliness. So Paul connects our faith to how we conduct ourselves in God's household, in the Lord's church. Because to Paul, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. That mystery revealed, Christ revealed to us, our Savior And when we understand the mystery of godliness is Jesus revealed to us, then we we are excited about that good news and, and we humbly submit ourselves to that gospel message. And we're willingly uh, submissive. We willingly worship the way God wants, the way that pleases Him. We offer that acceptable worship as the Hebrew author said. When we understand the mystery of godliness, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us, he saved us by his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And he rose again, conquering death and destruction, giving us eternal life for those who would put their faith in him. And because of that, we just say, whatever you want, that's what we're going to do. Because we're so thankful that you saved us from our sins. Have you come to know that mystery of godliness? Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Have you put him on in baptism? Have you been united to Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life as Scripture teaches? Do you need prayers about your walk with God? Do you have questions about the Bible? Is there any way we can serve you this morning? We want you to know we're here for you. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.